Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Bria Barthel. And I'm Sina Bazilahickey. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley exploring the All-Electric Buildings Act with Liz Moran of Earth Justice. Next up, correspondent Elizabeth Press brings us excerpts from the recent Troy City Council meeting where local citizens called for the city to take action on eliminating lead pipes from systems supplying water to homes and businesses. Then our roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry, shares the second of four reports with excerpts from a presentation by the uh, Reverend Al Sharpton about police brutality and the killing of Tyree Nichols in Memphis. After that, Eunice Jong talks with Miss Delgado, head of Troy's Emma Willard School's Ready program about the health education provided to students from first year through seniors at the school and the program's plans for inclusiveness. Finally, Marsha Lazarus takes us to the Albany Institute of History and Art to learn about the YouthFX photo exhibition currently on display. But first, here are the headlines. Following the recent finding of elevated lead levels in water in some homes in Troy, a number of residents confronted officials at Thursday night's city council meeting, demanding to know why $500,000 in federal funding from 2018 to replace lead pipes has not been spent. Channel 6 reported that Mayor Patrick Madden claims it's because the city still needs to develop a criterion to distribute the funds fairly among all residents who need it. Quote, we're estimating the cost in the city of Troy to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 22 to $24 million, end quote, said Madden. Governor Hochul is proposing a 30% tuition hike over five years for SUNY Albany and the state's other four research campuses. The other state colleges would see an annual 3% hike in tuition. The State Department of Environmental Conservation said it is investigating a leak of several hundred gallons at the Norlite plant in Cohoes Thursday morning. The state attorney general and DEC is presently suing Norlite for being a public nuisance. A local citizens group, Lights Out Norlite, has asked the court to allow them to intervene in the case, citing decades of failure by DEC to adequately monitor the hazardous waste and aggregate production plant. The Times Union reports that the Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration has cited several Amazon facilities, including a fulfillment center in Skodak and a delivery station in New Windsor, for failing to keep workers safe. OSHA found that Amazon workers faced a high risk of injury due to lifting packages and heavy items, awkwardly twisting, bending, and extending themselves and working long hours. That's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. To learn how you can contribute, uh, or this, this, (laughs) wrong line. 
Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. Now to our first story. As you've heard, the New York State All-Electric Buildings Act would require new buildings to not heat with fossil fuels. Let's hear more about the act in Mark Dunley's recent interview with Liz Moran of the activist group Earth Justice. We're joined by uh, Liz Moran, who is the uh, New York policy advocate for uh, Earth Justice. Uh, And I saw um, Liz recently uh, leading a rally on the million dollar staircase at the state capitol uh, as part of the campaign for all electric buildings act um liz how, how, what was your feeling response to the rally it was such a phenomenal day an excellent event you really saw the energy that new yorkers are bringing to the table here when it comes to electrifying buildings um and that really tracks uh there was polling that was actually conducted this past fall about how New Yorkers feel towards all electric new construction. And 66% of New Yorkers support this policy. Uh, And so you can really feel that energy there. People are really excited to get New York off of fossil fuels to make their homes safer and uh, to save on energy costs, um, which is another important uh, benefit of moving towards all electric new construction. So it was a very... Uh, for lack of a better word, energetic day. Um, And we're feeling strongly encouraged about this budget season. Now, the governor did actually have something similar to this last year, not quite the timeline. So what does she put in the budget this year? And how does that compare to, you know, the Oil Electric Buildings Act? Yeah, so last year, the governor did have a very small provision dedicated towards all electric new construction that would have mandated it starting in 2027. Um, We're really glad that the governor has put this on the table two years running because it means a conversation is going to be had. There's going to be negotiations during the budget process. So our interest here is very good and should be commended. Regarding the details, um, there's room for improvement. So The governor's proposal has a start date for um, all electric new construction for buildings three stories and under starting 2026 and for larger buildings and commercial buildings starting in 2028. Um, So that timeline is pretty weak. We think it's critical to move at a faster pace and entirely doable. New York City has a law on the books where they're going to be starting all electric new construction soon Um, and starting it for larger buildings than three stories. It's actually going to be for buildings six stories and under starting um, in the next year. We know this is technologically feasible. It's already happening in a number of municipalities across New York State where we're getting all electric newly constructed buildings. Because at this point, it's just starting to make sense to go that way, both for people's pocketbooks and for their health and to address the climate crisis. Um, So as the budget process is underway, we're going to be strongly advocating for the All-Electric Buildings Act 
which is legislation carried by Senator Kavanaugh and Assemblymember Gallagher, it lines up with New York City's local law. We think it makes sense for the state to adopt what New York City has for uniformity. And again, because it's entirely doable and necessary. Um, so that's what we'll be pushing for uh, as budget negotiations are underway. Well, last year, uh, you know, Governor Hochul did put in, you know, something in the budget about this. It was pulled out. Uh, somebody said they didn't want to do the policy in the budget, and then it did not get passed at the end of the session. Is it, so is the push going to be to include it in the budget, put the Oil Electric Building Act into the budget, which is which is legally doable, or is it going to be, you know, in the session, or is that decision not yet been made? We are absolutely advocating for this to be done in the budget and don't see any reason to not do in the budget. So last year, the Senate included it in their one house budget. Um, and we are strongly pushing the assembly to do the same this year and to come to the table and negotiate on this. Um, I think for some additional context, getting this done in the budget is really important because uh, New York State just finalized its climate scoping plan. And addressing buildings is a big component of the scoping plan. The budget is an important document for New York State because it indicates um, how strong a priority something needs to be for the state. Uh, this is something, this document is going to be really important this year because it's the first coming out of this scoping plan. And it offers major opportunities for New York State to significantly tackle some of the recommendations in the scoping plan. And in many cases, um, it'll be important to go beyond what the scoping plan has recommended. Now, I'm going to ask you sort of probably a little complicated question. You know, there, there have been a lot of pushback against the Electric Buildings Act. Oh, you know, heat pumps don't work in upstate New York, which I think has pretty much been discouraged. But on a different but somewhat related issue, more recently, the right's been going after, oh, the people want to, you know, these climate activists want to get rid of your gas stoves and go to um, electric or induction um, type type stoves. How, how is that gas stove issue um, playing out? Because that seems to be the new buzzword in the media. Yeah. So at the end of the day, this is really not about gas stoves. Um, it is, but it isn't. So Part one to discuss this is we're really just talking about new construction here. So we're not talking about ripping people's gas stoves out of their homes. Uh, you know, there'll be a time where we are going to need to do that, but that's not what's being discussed in this legislation. Um, this is really just about newly constructed homes. Um, number two, it's important to add the public health component here. Uh, 19% of childhood asthma cases can be attributed to gas stove pollution in people's homes. And there's a lot of gas stoves in New York. So tackling fossil fuels in new construction is one small way to start getting at this problem. Um, but down the road, we are going to need to address gas stoves in a more meaningful way. It's just not actually the first thing on the docket here. Um, we really just want to start with new buildings because we know we can't continue locking in our reliance upon fossil fuels. Okay. So the further confuses discussion, because we're really talking about the Electric Buildings Act. Um, 
but mainly we have assistant buildings in New York State and the Climate Council and the governor says, you know, we have to help, you know, low and moderate income people, you know, transition to air heat pumps, which can be expensive. She's put, I believe, maybe $200 million or something on the table. I, I think the advocates are talking billions, not a couple hundred million. How is that going to play out? Yeah, the governor did put forward $200 million towards NYSERDA's Empower program to help low-income households retrofit their homes. It's good, um, but it's true. It's far from what is needed here. Uh, so we're hopeful that the governor and legislature will come together and include additional resources for low to moderate income households to start making their switch off of fossil fuels and to make their homes more energy efficient. Um, that's so we, Yeah, go ahead. We just have about a minute left. Let's finish up. Where do we move forward here with the Oil Electric Buildings Act? What else do you guys want to see in the budget in the last minute? Right now, the focus is turning to the legislature. The legislature has the opportunity to negotiate in this budget process through their one-house budgets. We want to see the assembly in particular include the All Electric Buildings Act in their one-house budget. It's gaining tremendous popularity within the assembly, so we see no reason for them to not have this as part of their one-house budget. And we want to make sure that all of the climate policies in the governor's, uh, in the final budget, are as strong as necessary to give New York a truly zero emissions future and uh, to protect environmental justice communities. If people want more information about the Oil Electric Buildings Act, Earth Justice help us to do that. Yeah, you can visit earthjustice.org for more information. We put out a budget release with all of our positions on what the governor's proposed and the public can find that there. Thank you very much, uh, Liz Moran, New York Policy Advocate, Earth Justice. And this is Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you to Mark Dunley for that report. That was a follow-up from a year ago with Ann Rabe from NYPERG. In this interview, he spoke with Liz Moran. In recent programs, we noted the high levels of lead detected in some homes and businesses in Troy. Elizabeth Press brings us these excerpts from a recent Common Council meeting where residents expressed deep concern about the issue. On January 30th, 2023, the City of Troy put out a notice titled Important Information About Lead in City of Troy Drinking Water. The City has reported that none of the main water lines are made of lead pipes, but there are an undetermined amount of lead service lines those lines that connect our homes to the main water lines in homes built before 1975 that could be lead pipes. In 2018, Troy was awarded half a million dollars to start to deal with this problem, but to date, none of the money has been spent. On Thursday, February 2nd, residents and advocates showed up to the Troy City Council to express their concern and frustration with how Troy is handling lead in the water. Here are some of the public comments from the city council meeting, starting with Jonah Favreau. Immediately after finding out my child had lead in his blood, he hit the ground running trying to fix the issue. I received a free water kit from New York State to test our water and the results came back a few weeks later, alarmingly high. 
I contacted the water department in the city to report the issue and was told that they couldn't count because they weren't tested by the lab the city used. We collected further samples for the city. And again, a few weeks later, the results came back almost identical and still very high. And I'm talking three times the allowable amount of lead in my drinking water. From here, I started Googling resources and almost immediately found the article from 2017 announcing that the city had received over $500,000 in state aid to start replacing lead service lines. It took a month of frequent emails and phone calls, but I finally had the opportunity to talk directly to Cleland in late December. He told me a number of things. Number one, that this dollar amount was a drop in the bucket and that action wouldn't be taken until the EPA disbursed more funds in 2025. That about a year and a half ago, he put a spending plan in front of this council and it was now out of his hands. That it was the homeowner's responsibility to dig up the service line. He vividly remembers the day his dad dug up theirs and questioned whether or not my husband could do the same. And lastly, that he grew up with lead pipes and that he is fine today. That is the definition of survivalist mentality. And it's disgusting to say to a mother who was eight months pregnant, dealing with lead in the blood of her child who has a speech delay and other sensory issues, both of which are known side effects of lead being present in the blood. Excuse me. I reached out to the county. There's no assistance if lead is found in the water versus paint. No stipends are provided for homeowners who are forced to run their water for at least a minute once a day, sometimes twice if they work outside of the home. No stipends for those who choose to buy bottled water. No filters are handed out like they do in the, some suburbs of Colorado to all residents until the lead pipe issue is resolved. No stipends are provided for vitamins and supplements and high quality food that can be used to flush the lead from a child's body. There isn't even a simple blurb on the city's website indicating what type of certification to look for and filter should a resident have the means to purchase one. Simply put, the city is lacking in supporting this major crisis. I've included your office, Mr. Madden, in a slew of emails to Chris Wheeland over the last three months asking pertinent information regarding the spending of the funds in 2018 and the support you're offering residents. And those emails were left ignored. I know, Mayor Madden, that you pivoted the responsibility back onto the residents to report lead service lines before taking action, and that you are concerned developing a plan that's fair for all residents. But what's not fair is feeling left unheard because I'm simply a mother. And the biggest injustice at hand is that the money was left unspent and unused over the last five years while children are still being exposed to contaminate year after year after year. My child is two and a half. I want to know why this money hasn't been spent yet, and I want to know who specifically dropped the ball. My name is Sean Collins. I am the president of the Troy Area Labor Council. I had a plumber over to replace my water beaver. My wife and I uh, bought a house about a year and a half ago. Fortunately, I had seen the emails and, and had heard from many of the folks here about what is going on. I, I asked the plumber, can you go check out my lead service line? I had had some issues with the test, fortunately. Uh, he was able to uh, help me while I waited for the city to get back to me to say, yes, you have a lead service line. Uh, my wife, Ashley, is uh, nine months pregnant, basically. 
Uh, she's due any minute now. Um, and uh, this was certainly not uh, exciting news to receive uh, on, uh, on the cusp of uh, you know, us having our first child. I am astounded uh, that the city has had access to this money since 2018 and has taken no action. Many of you have been on the city council for years. This is not something that you could say uh, you were not aware of. And there seems to have been no proactive action on the part of the city council, on the part of the mayor and his administration, nothing. I, I don't understand how, how this is allowed to uh, go on. As always, when these th sorts of things happen, who are the ones who are most affected by it? Women, or particularly pregnant women, working class folks, low income folks, people of color, people who uh, don't own their homes, the majority of the residents of the city. Erin Beera. My story predates the, the funding that was made available to the city in uh, March of 2018. Um, my son, who was born in uh, June of uh, 2016, uh, at his one-year uh, checkup, was tested for lead levels, and uh, we received notice from the county shortly thereafter um, that he had elevated blood lead levels. We, you know, immediately took action. We understand, um, you know, we need to do testing on the water. We did that with a lab locally, discovered that it, in fact, was the water that was contributing to these lead levels, and uh, you know, we went out, bought a filter, uh, resolved the issue that way. I suppose what's more irking to me about this story is that I served as a city engineer uh, between June of 2020 and uh, this, this recent December. And I was unaware that the city had this funding available when I was in a position to possibly assist and aid the residents of the city resolving an issue that affected me personally or my son. I, I just hope that some action can be taken. And while I'm sure this offer will be ignored, I would offer assistance if, uh, if I can in any way. My name is Liz Moran, and I am speaking both as a resident of the city of Troy for the past 10 years, and also in my professional capacity as the New York policy advocate for Earth Justice. Earth Justice is the nation's first and largest legal environmental nonprofit organization. Uh, we do a lot of work related to lead. The public has a basic right and expectation of government that the water that comes through their taps is going to be safe and healthy to drink. And right now, Troy is failing on that very basic expectation. I want to give some context as to why this state-level funding actually exists. I'm going to bring in a little bit more local. Tehusic Falls, New York. There's some parallels that I think you all should be extremely disturbed by from Jonna's story. Uh, in Hoosick Falls, they ended up finding out that the government was covering up toxic levels of PFAS contamination in their drinking water. And what brought that to light was a resident whose father died from a disease that is associated with exposure to PFAS contamination, and he had to make a stink about it. It is shameful that there is any type of comparison that can be made between what happened in Music Falls and what's going on here in Troy with lead service lines, because this was entirely preventable. So the Hoosick Falls drinking water crisis prompted New York State to really change their tune when it came to addressing drinking water quality issues in New York. And they created the Clean Water Infrastructure Act, which is a multi-billion dollar program to help municipalities across the state address drinking water issues. Flint happened around the same time, which is why there was lead service line replacement funds. So New York State wouldn't have a Flint-like crisis. 
So the fact that the city of Troy has had this money for five years is nothing short of disgraceful. And as you've heard, there's quite possibly attributable lead poisoning cases as a result of this inaction. I want to note a couple things as to why it's particularly inexcusable that this money hasn't been spent. Number one, the city of Troy actually didn't have to accept this money from the state. The Department of Health went through a process where they evaluated what municipalities would make most sense to receive these funds. The city did not have to accept, but there must have been some understanding that this is likely an issue here, and that's why the city took this money. That's part one. Part two is there's actually a lot directed from the Department of Health website as to how you can start using this money, how you can identify places with lead service lines. You can start by looking at a list of houses that are dated 1940 and older. Uh, and then lastly, it's not like the criteria here is particularly high to just replace a lead service line. Any part of the pipe, as long as it's lead, has to be replaced. We are calling the city to develop a plan immediately to remediate the situation and start using these funds. At the end of the city council meeting, the mayor made a statement and allowed for some questions. It got a bit heated when Greg Campbell-Cohen basically asked why Troy was prioritizing fairness over helping some residents fix and replace their lead pipes. That's one of the stupidest questions I've ever heard. It is. No, I'm trying. We put, we put information out on the website so that people could take steps to avoid lead accumulating in their water. We're not, we're not letting people get lead poisoning. We're working on the solutions that we can provide at this time. I would encourage everybody to come to the workshop on the 16th. We have a, a problem, a serious problem in the city. The money that we have is a fraction and maybe about one and a half percent of what we need. We do, do not yet have a good inventory of the houses with the uh, lead service lines. Uh, we've had about a 4% return rate on our uh, efforts to collect that. Uh, but based on that and extrapolation on that and the you know, the historical knowledge that the water department has. We estimate there are about 4,500 lead service lines in the city. If we uh, estimate $5,000 per replacement, we're looking at $22,500,000. It's an enormous number. And yes, there will be grant funds available to help with some of that, but uh, there's not gonna be enough. Thanks to Elizabeth Press for that report on the Troy Common Council. On our website, oh, and you can find a recent interview with City Council member Emily Men by Mark Dunley at our website, mediasanctuary.org, in which she spoke about what households can do to test their water for lead and explains what government funding is available to replace lead pipes. And there will be uh, more public engagement on lead at the public utilities meeting at 5.30 p.m. on February 16th, 2023. For those just tuning in, I'm Bria Barthel. And I'm Sina Bazilahickey. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, also streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. 
This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, joining our production team, or giving us financial support. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. You've likely heard of the horrific killing of Tyree Nichols um, in Memphis. Our roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry, recently attended an online webinar in which Reverend Al Sharpton spoke uh, with the National Action Network about police brutality. This is the second part of four. The other day, to the parents, and one of the things that I said to the parents is that what is stunning to me is that if you watch the tape, what they're doing and what they're saying is two different things. They're grabbing him. They got control of him. But they keep saying, give us your hands. Give us your hands. Let's cuff you. They are holding his arms. He's about 140 pounds. There's five of them. They could handcuff him. But what they were trying to do is since they knew they had on body cameras, they were trying to set up a cover-up while they were committing the act. Which means they were doing what they were doing intentionally. How are you going to tell somebody? First of all, they go up to his car, grab him out of the car, and never, ever address what is the crime. He said, what did I do? I didn't do nothing. They grab him and start beating him. He runs. Runs for his life. Well, if somebody grabbed you out the car and hit you, and you know what police would do, you'd run too. But even if you try to say he shouldn't have run, you don't beat a man to death. And unarmed man that you know was no threat to you. There's no excuse for what happened to this young man. The problem is that if they did it to Nichols, they've been doing it all along. Maybe they didn't die. And the problem is that with Nichols dying, this has brought it where we're going to deal with it. And I'm telling you, we are going to deal with the death of Nichols. Now, they have what they call the Scorpio, Scorpio unit. And they have these special units in several cities. Now, if the units are set up to deal with especially egregious crimes, then why are you dealing with an alleged traffic violation in the first place? Special unit don't deal with speeding. But then the police chief said that they looked at the tapes, they can't even find evidence of him recklessly driving. So you just arbitrarily decide you're going to pull this guy over and start dealing with this? Then none of the police 
And none of them that even arrived acted as though they were even in any way, shape, or form questioning them. They start piling on. I'm glad you got them. Cheering them on. Every one of them need to face the bar of justice. And I watched as this boy begged for his life. All I want to do is go home. I got a call last night from Falonis Floyd, George Boyd's, Floyd's brother. And he said, the Rev, I can't hardly sleep. Because as I watched the tape of Nichols saying, calling on his mother, it reminded me of when George was laying there on the ground with the knee on his neck, calling for his mother. Something about when you get to that state where you somewhere between life and death, the only thing you had the only comfort, the only refuge, the only strength you had was to call on the black woman that helped and nursed you through. And despite the fact that this mother had to deal with the pain of a son beat to a pulp and dying three days later, she stood up there yesterday and said, that I'm praying for these officers. Yeah. Yeah. She showed a mercy that was not extended to her. She called for peace. Let me tell you something. We are going to continue protesting, but we're going to do it nonviolently as we always have done. Anybody that engages in violence are helping the police get away with what they did. Because what they want to do is see violence so they can say, see, this is why the police had to do what they did. You see how out of control they are. Don't play into the narrative that will end up helping them defend what they did. They're going to have some provocateurs that's going to try to get in our marches and in our protests. Sit them down. Tell them, no, not here. We're going to respect what this family is asked for and the strategy of the lawyers, and we are going forward and be as fervent and passionate as we can. We are not going to stop being angry, but we're not going into violence the people talking to me are they is it gonna be violence? There was already violence. If it wasn't violence, we wouldn't be having a funeral Wednesday morning. The violence was done by the police, not by the protesters. So Wednesday morning. We're having the funeral at the Mississippi Boulevard Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. The pastor of the church, Reverend Turner, is the secretary to the National Board of National Action Network. 
and we help to get him to have the church open, uh -huh. I will be doing the eulogy. And one of the things, I'll tell you two things before I do the eulogy. One is that we need to examine and break down all these special units across this country. We need to stop empowering these units that are undefined and feel like they can do whatever they want to do. Secondly, we talked to Senator Cory Booker last night. We need to bring back and reintroduce the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Why am I saying that? Is because in that act, which we only missed by a few votes, it would end qualified immunity coordinator. Where police would know they can be sued for their actions. Why would that be effective, Reverend Al? Because if a policeman understood that he could be personally liable or she could be personally liable, they would behave differently. Their wife would tell them in the morning, now be careful even if you get angry because we can lose the house and we can lose the car if you go up there cut up. When police feel they have no skin in the game, they'll act any kind of way they want. Well, we, we, there are few people that work anywhere that they are not personally liable. So what makes them different? And they should not be able to control their body cameras. That George Floyd bill, had it been law, might have made some of these police think twice. This U.S. Senate and this Congress needs to deal with these civil rights issues of these times. And that is the George Floyd bill and the policing act. And we will come out of Memphis and fight like we never fought before to pass federal policing law. Sorry for the audio problems there. Thanks to our roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry, for that excerpt. You can hear the first segment of Willie's series on our website, and we'll hear two more reports in future programs. Ms. Delgado has been working on the READY programs. Those are health classes in the past at Emma Willard School for six years out of her nine years. Hudson Mohawk Magazine correspondent Eunice Chung was interested to ask Ms. Delgado about the importance of the emphasis on ethics and identity in the field. This is Eunice Chung, and today I'm talking to Ms. Delgado. Welcome, Ms. Delgado. Can you give us a brief introduction of yourself? Yes. Hi, Eunice. I am Ms. Delgado. I am the director of Ready Programs at Emma Willard, and uh, this is my eighth year here. So to start off with the health class, can you talk about how the health class curriculum started off at Emma Willard? Yes. Uh, when I came to Emma eight years ago, um, it was taught as a sophomore uh required class mm. sophomores got health for one semester either in the fall or the spring so you know within that time frame or you know the semester time frame they were uh having to smush in all of the different health 
topic. So there was physical well-being, mental health components came into it. There was small sex ed unit. There was some like substance and alcohol abuse, um, risk-taking behavior, things like that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, all of that was fit into one semester. I'm not sure how that was developed like what choices were about which topics were um made about uh at that time when i started working on the health class um was about six years ago now um and my particular interest was in expanding the sex ed um curriculum because that's where my background is and my interest is so we were able to do that from it used to be like two classes in the whole semester now or pre-covid we got to about eight classes, which was really um, exciting to have much more time to go in depth. Um, so the the shifts that started to happen were around COVID. Um, I think your sophomore year, was it online? It was like Wednesday morning block? Yeah, it was. Okay, yeah. Um, so you were still getting one semester's worth of health right and it was all virtual or was it all year i can't remember now for your grade i think it was all year okay but it was just for like 50 minutes i remember wednesday morning all on zoom um so around that time is when we started developing the ready program which started out just with the freshman class and eventually, when we came back from COVID last year, was able to expand into um, all grade levels. But we were still working through, like, what does that look like? What types of learning actually can happen there? Uh, as you will remember, we were all in Kiggins at the beginning of the year, and that was not a, uh, a system that was going to work very well. So this is the first year where all grade levels have ready seminar in their schedule. There are dedicated teachers to actually do that work. Um, and we decided also that instead of having sophomore health be one semester, your sophomore year, we would build the health curriculum into um, the full four years of, of the READY program. So health wow. is now rolled into four years of READY. Um, and one of the things I'm excited for with that is now instead of just putting all of that health information in your sophomore year, we can hit on different topics and different levels of topics throughout the four years that are more developmentally appropriate, right? So there's a really important stuff you need to learn about health topics your freshman year, and you still have learning to do and like more depth to go into potentially your senior year when the choices you need to start making are very different than when you're a freshman. So that will now be able to start happening across all four years, not just spring or sophomore year. So I believe that there was like a major development within the own like health class slash ready program as in for now. Um, but as a person who has taken this class previously, I believe that specifically to the health class, we only learn about the scientific or medical aspect of health rather than any ethical or identical or identity related issues. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, no arguing with that is definitely focused on um, thinking about the biology, the science, the kind of informational pieces and aspects of health across all, you know, the, the kind of main topics we talk about. Um, some of the reasons 
again, from my understanding and certainly from my perspective are um, health is a really challenging uh, subject to have for one semester because unlike kind of, you know, math, English, like all your other core classes where you're, you all pretty much come in with the same um, educational background. And there's certainly like an expectation that you've had certain things before you come to Emma in those core subjects. The same is not true for health. There are some people in, you know, old version sophomore health class who've never had any type of health before in their lives. There are some people who've had really robust health programs. So there is a lot of the kind of here's the data, here's the information came from folk, all folks need to be able to have just basic information. And with the time crunch of one single semester, it didn't allow us to start thinking about deeper levels of how identity is a part of that and layered on how, like what kind of ethics or ethical questions might, might we be thinking about. Um, so those are the reasons I understand and the, certainly the challenges I've come across as a health teacher. The hope is, and the plan is now that we're developing through this year, which you don't get the benefit of as a senior, is starting, those things are already starting to be layered into the Ready program now this year, and we'll just keep being able to dive deeper into those. So um, we're thinking about identity. I just did a lesson with the sophomores right uh, before I was talking to you, but we're doing their um, alcohol unit. And we're talking about how does your identity, how does your body, like the way your body functions, the way um, your particular experiences and your culture impact how you approach, in this case, alcohol consumption. We had the same conversation last a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about sleep. Um, and then absolutely one of the units next year for the junior class will be around ethical decision making. So we're building it into our, the program and curriculum slowly. Uh, well, not slowly. Next year it will be there. Um, and now we have the time and space to actually do that. So sophomore, freshman year, we can focus more on ensuring everyone come, is like approaching those ethical questions with the same level of information. Um, and then able to level up to a different type of conversation and learning that allows you to um, dive deeper, be in conversation with each other. Um, ask questions of each other and of the systems that we live in. Um, because only, you know, my philosophy and perspective is there's only so much you are able to make decisions about with just information. You have to understand the systems that you navigate through um, in order to make some of those decisions, important decisions in life. Um, so I'm hoping we're starting to get to that place already with the freshmen and sophomores now um, and just keep building up to that place. Yeah, I mean, my next question was about the future plans, but that already sounds like a really tactful approach to incorporating the importance of ethics and identities in the writing programs. And mm -hmm. thank you so much for sharing the information regarding the health classes or the writing programs at Emma Willard Ms. Delgado. Of course, thank you for asking. And um I just think back on how bizarre your classes experience has been and just having this mishmash of <laughs> we're trying to get all of this learning in for you guys um, and how much your 
like what health and what ready has looked like in your time here has changed drastically every single year. Um, and now we we're at, you know, we're at a stable place where we can start now actually doing the, the learning we want you guys to be engaged in and that you've all been asking for. Thanks to Eunice Young for that look at the restructured health education program at Troy's Emma Willard School. For our last piece, Marsha Lazarus headed to the Albany Institute of Art and History to check out the Gordon Parks exhibition where she discovered an exhibition by YouthFX. I recently visited the Gordon Parks photography exhibit at the Albany Institute for History and Art. The exhibit is titled I Too Am America. Parks was the first African-American staff photographer hired by Life magazine, and he worked there for two decades. I found Parks' images so vivid, so empathetic. I then had a chance to view together with public historian Lacey Wilson the diverse and powerful responses of the seven young photographers who participated in a Youth FX Albany Institute collaboration and workshop titled Gordon Parks, My Camera is a Weapon. We had an opening reception a few weeks ago for this exhibit, um, and we were overwhelmed with the community's response coming out to see it. We had over 100 people, or like 191 folks came to interact with the exhibit, see the kids work, and the kids each gave fantastic speeches. The inspiration and the photos and their words, all very fantastic. Thanks so much, Lacey, for accepting my request without any notice. To show us around the Youth FX exhibit here, in conjunction with the Gordon Parks exhibit. So here is the public historian, Lacey Wilson. Fantastic, um, I'm happy to have you here. So this is a project that we did in conjunction with YouthFX funded by the um, Capitalize Albany Corporation with a um, Amplify Albany grant that we got late last year, um, funding this collaboration between us and YouthFX. So if you see the Gordon Parks exhibit, I would advise you to look at that first, coming to the museum. Um, but we brought seven students into that exhibit, um, and YouthFX educated them about Gordon Parks and photography. And me and my uh, colleague Mallory Schultz um, put together this grant and worked with um, YouthFX to create this program to um, give the opportunity for the kids to learn about this photography, learn about Gordon Parks and photography in the capital region and through that the kids had cameras for about a couple weeks through the holidays and they took to our understanding hundreds of photos um, and we had them pick one and printed them and framed them and they're up here in the institute along with their individual artist statements um, about them so it encourages you to look at the photo first um, after seeing Gordon Parts, come look at the YouthFX exhibit, look at the photo first, and then you can read in the kids' words specifically why this photo and what they got out of the program. You heard the young people speaking. What would you say motivated the young people to take all those photographs and do all this, all the work involved? It's clear to me when you read their words in this exhibit, as well as hearing them speak, they were inspired by a lot of things. I think that what's really great about giving them the opportunity to give an artist statement is when we tell them that their words and their pictures will be up in a museum, they 
clearly took that very seriously. And as you read them, they were thinking very deep thoughts about why these photos in particular. What an enriching experience. There's quite a diversity of images here. But yeah, quite a diversity of stuff. We've got this glove here. Um, this is Noah's work titled Pinky. Um, and I, I won't um, parse his words. I, I'd encourage you to come and read them yourself when you come and see it. But we've got pictures of the environment. We've got pictures of family members, pictures of Albany, a picture from um, further down south. Um, it's, it's a tremendous, tremendous um, array of works here. So how were these young people chosen to be the photographers? So YouthFX, um, working with us, um, helped develop this program and curriculum for the kids, and then they reached out and sent, um, and the kids applied to be a part of the program. So it was an application process. Um, there were eight kids initially. One of them dropped out for some reason, but we, the seven that we had that were fantastic and were chosen, I think some of them had done other YouthFX programs. Some of them had interest in photography before this. YouthFX primarily focuses on digital media, so they do a lot of documentary things. And so I think that's where a lot of their interest initially came in before taking this particular program. And then they were all, I think, inspired by the works in the Gordon Parks exhibit, as well as learning about photography from other local capital region photographers that YouthFX brought in, in terms of different kinds of photographers. Had any of the young people known of Gordon Parks and his work prior to this project? So we asked them that when we first began the tour, me and Mallory Schultz, my educator um, um, co-worker, um, education manager, specific title, I believe. Um, we, had, uh, we talked to them about Gordon Parks, and I think one of them had known of Shaft in particular. I think that was his entry point. But I don't know if any of them had really intentionally engaged with his photography in the way that they had remembered. Like, they, it, was, it was seemed to be relatively new to them when we talked about it. Do you recall any of the reactions of the young people to seeing Gordon Parks? Very powerful pieces. Mm -hmm. It was, um, there were a lot of different kinds of reactions. They were, they were noticing patterns in the space of the photos mm -hmm. that had been chosen, because um, there's about 40 photos in that space, but they all come from his Life Magazine work in particular. So they were, um, they were noticing, oh, there's a lot of photos of, with children in it in particular. They were really interested in the photos of the um, Nation of Islam, really interested in the photos of Muhammad Ali, really interested in the photos further down south. <laughs> Excuse me. And um, they, they were, uh, there was a particular photo, I think, from like um, some of the DC photos that he had taken in that space, where there's these two children um, with a, like a porcelain doll between them. And that, that was something that they were really interested in because they were, one of the girls had mentioned like porcelain dolls would have been pretty expensive to have, and it is obviously a white doll. So she was like really interrogating what that meant. And then Mallory had pointed out to me, and when we did a tour a few days ago, to get that photo, Gordon must have gotten down on the ground to really get that photo because the kids are sitting down. So we, she talks a lot in her work um, with, with bringing kids through that space about the trust that Gordon had to build with all of these people that he's interacting with and photographing. Um, so there were, I think the kids had like a lot of things to say and really were really intentionally engaging with a lot of the work. And I, I think so, it was fantastic. So observant and perceptive of that young person. Wow. Lacey, as the public historian of the African American History Project here, 
what is most meaningful to you about the Gordon Parks exhibit? I think what's great about it is it's um, it's it shows a part of history that we don't currently show in our museum right now. It's very modern history, um, and I think that's very exciting. I think showing the different ways that these topics about inequality and um, were happening across the world because there's a lot of photos in Brazil as well. But also as like a person who works in a museum and doesn't spend nearly enough time in the galleries, it's great to walk up there and hear people talking about it and really engaging with it. Me and Mallory had brought a group up there, today is Thursday, I believe on Tuesday, from Ida Yarbrough um, Center um, Apartments, and we had brought some people up there and they, many of them had roots further down south, so they were comparing their own experiences to the photos they were seeing. And that kind of engagement and that kind of conversation is like particularly exciting to me. Because? Because that's what I think museums and these spaces are for. They're for these kinds of conversations. They're for um, really interrogating these spaces. And going beyond just looking at. Mm -hmm. yeah. Going beyond just be a, being a, a passive observer. Indeed, yeah. Just being able to really engage with it and make the connections to your own life and your own path and your own history and your own family and all of that. Mm -hmm. Was there a one or two photos that particularly grabbed you, Lacey? In Gordon Parks? Yes. Yeah, so there's several photos. I'm originally from the D.C. metropolitan area, um, and uh, there's a couple of photos that he took when he had befriended this woman um, in D.C. in particular, um, and that remind me a lot of my family and the, the stories that my grandmother told me about living and working in D.C. So those were a couple of my favorites. There's a couple of just like that family that he, that he had taken that I just really, really grabbed me. So there's a, almost an exhilaration of seeing your own life, your own experience up there in the museum for all to see. I think so. Yeah, I would agree with that statement. So YouthFX is going to be up here um, until February 17th, um, and our Gordon Parks exhibit is going to be up until February 19th. So please, please come by and see both. I encourage you to see Gordon Parks first so you can see what inspired the kids in particular when you see their words. But if you are curious about Albany photographers, I, come to, I would encourage you to come and see the YouthFX exhibit. Thanks to Marsha Lazarus and her guest Lacey Wilson for that report. For those listening on Friday, consider attending a panel discussion with local professional photographer Cliff Oliver and others on Saturday, February 4th, 2 to 3.30 p.m. at the Institute. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. And I'm Bria Barthel. Our engineer for today was Jalen Boston for his first time at the controls. Welcome, Jalen. We thank all the other volunteers who made today's episode possible. Mark Dunley helped with headlines in his segment. Other volunteers included Elizabeth Press, Willie Terry, Eunice Jong, and Marshall Lazarus. Thanks to all, and thanks to you, the listeners, who make this all worthwhile.